as you find your seats, let me just introduce myself for those that I don't know or that you don't know me. My name is Chris Drent. Um, I've been at Mission Road for about a decade now and um, been serving as an elder here. And um, most recently, actually, I'm, I'm now a full-time TES student. Um, so that's, uh, that's a new development. I now identify as a seminoid, uh, I can say that. Uh, but I'm thankful to be here this morning to share together in God's word and um, to fellowship in that. As we get started, I just want to toss out a, a question to consider. And by the way, there, there are handouts uh, in the back. If you didn't get one, I won't be offended if you get up and go get one so you can just take notes. It's a simple outline, but it might help. So as we get started, um, here's a question to consider. If I say to you, I, I want to live every day, or maybe I want you to live every day to the fullest, like get the most out of every day, I wonder what question comes to mind. I wonder what picture comes to mind, because in this day and age, we hear a lot about that. You know, people discontent with their life or their jobs, and they want to live every day to the fullest, and what comes out you see on in, in the media, I think social media, I see it in, you know, sometimes what may come to mind is an Instagram kind of perfect shot moment of adventure. Some buff guy sending this big summit, this big vista behind him and a deep sunset and he's, he's living life to the fullest. <laughs> uh, or maybe it's a person, a, a, a friend that you know that maybe living life to the fullest would be able to go to her favorite um, I don't know, health spa for the weekend and, and really be pampered the entire time just to live it up, right? That's living it up. I, I heard another friend the other day that just on a whim went and bought a, a, the new puppy that was gonna bring joy into their lives out of, on a whim because they're just seizing the day, living it up. That's gonna bring joy to life. Um, That's it, just a, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that could come to mind, but You'll get a little bit of everything, and the world tells us, um, in fact, sometimes our own hearts tell us that the definition of the best day or living each day to the best will have a different meaning and a different definition and a different value to everyone. Certainly what the particular day looks like and what my preferences look like are going to be very, very different, I'm sure. However, in reality, if you really consider the truth about life, we find out differently that the definition of leaving, living each day to the most is not different at the core for each person. As we read and learn from God's word about our reality, we find that living life to the fullest at its core has little to do with my preferences and ideas and everything to do with what God has said and what his character is like. And so today, we are gonna spend some time in Psalm 90, uh, where at the heart of this passage is the idea of how we can learn to live every day to its fullest, to its greatest value, but it's not our own measure. It's by God's measure, by his values. In other words, living every day wisely before him. So let me pray, and uh, we'll turn to Psalm 90. Father, we do come to your word humbly, and I ask that as we look at this, your spirit would be at work to bring depth and meaning and, and gravity to the truth of what it is Moses prayed and what we would wish to be the prayer of our own heart and to reflect on it in a way that would impact us 
change us, teach us. And so help us this morning. And Lord, I do pray that you give me clarity of thought and, and communication and words and that you'd give grace to the hearers and the hearts that are here that we would all learn from what you have to say for in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Quick context in Psalm 90 as you turn there. Uh, first of all, genre. Um, we learned in the intro of this that many of these psalms have different genres and we can kind of look at them differently. This one's interesting. It's a lament primarily, but it also has elements of wisdom literature. The lament uh, comes from this awareness, this acute awareness that people have of their mortality and their sin before God. And then the wisdom, uh, it directs our attention to consider attributes of God and live accordingly or how to live wisely before God. If you look at the subscript, um, in, in mine it says, uh, I mean, and it should in yours as well, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. I love that, the man of God. Um, there aren't many psalms that are actually attributed directly to Moses, and so, you know, we take note of this, you know, from reading from Moses' life, and even evident in this psalm, it's clear that Moses was a man of God, isn't it? Um, Moses was very close to God. He knew him well. God chose to show himself to Moses, to allow him to speak with him directly and plainly, um, and personally, Moses was certainly a man of God. The psalm doesn't directly state what the time or circumstance was that they were in. Um, so it's not specific to that, but the message of the psalm is clear no matter which setting it was originally penned in. Um, and honestly, not, not trying to tie it to a specific time and place, I know that it was certainly useful and applicable in many settings in the lives of, in the seasons of God's people. However, given what we do read in this psalm, it's actually quite descriptive generally um, and, and given what we know of the life of Moses, it's very likely that Moses wrote this psalm uh, near the end of the 40 years in the wilderness before they entered the promised land, which, which we read about in Numbers, and it's recounted in, or it's originally in Deuteronomy and then recounted in Numbers. So before we actually start reading this, I think it would be helpful if we just quickly recap this context that that would be in. And certainly it would apply to others, but you'll hear language that is actually used and shared in here, which is why I'm convinced this, is, this must have been when he penned this and was originally thinking through this. So if you remember, God had miraculously delivered his people from Egypt and, and promised them a land of their own. And so when they arrived at this promised land, God told them to send spies into the land to observe it for 40 days. And uh, you know the story, most of the spies came back with reports of good land, but really intimidating people. And in fact, their reports demonstrated a kind of a doubt and a fear in their heart that actually spread to the people. And it spread a fear and an intimidation of these people that also grew to be greater than their fear of their God who promised them this land. And they began to grumble. Um, doubt grew among them and they begin to cry out and grumble. And so no need to turn here now, but I'm just gonna read just a couple of verses so you can hear the language from, from Numbers 14, just so we can be reminded about the interaction between God and Moses and, and the people. Just listen to a few of these excerpts. In verse two, I'll start there. It says, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Ooh. Later it says, the Lord says to Moses, how long 
will these people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Moving down to verse 26 in that same chapter, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with his evil congregation? this evil congregation who are grumbling against me. I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so surely I will do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old upward who have grumbled against me. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In the wilderness, in this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. And that's exactly what happens. Um, In this season, God's people experience the very real punishment of God for an extended period of time. Moses experienced all of this with them. Moses, being the man of God, who spoke with God personally, knew God personally, interceded for the people to God. He watched the Lord follow through with the punishment of his people, thousands of people dying off over these years. So in this setting, observing God, hearing what God has said, knowing what God has promised, knowing of God's people, Moses prays. Moses, the man of God, prays. Let's read Psalm 90. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place In all generations, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. And toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. 
Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants. Let your majesty or and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Psalm 90 draws us to meditate on God and his character so that we would learn to live each day wisely before him and to call on his name for mercy and to live in his favor and goodness. So in this psalm, we're going to look at just as a way of organizing us going through that, we're going to look at four attributes of God's character that teach us to live each day wisely. We're going to start off just going back to verse 1, and we're going to see first, very clearly in these first two verses, God's eternality. So Moses opens his prayer by acknowledging and worshiping God for an attribute that sets the context, and we'll call it the scope even, the perspective that we need to even start considering wisdom on how to live. So he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to lasting, everlasting, you are God. So the first attribute Moses lays out is clear, God is eternal. So he's been present for all generations, of God's people back to the very beginning, and he's acknowledging that. And he doesn't just acknowledge that. He says something rather sweet in this case that our context helps us know. He says, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. That's a sweet statement for a people who've been nomadic in this 40-year period in the wilderness, moving from place to place, having nowhere to call their own yet um, because they're waiting to inherit the land promised to them. But Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, even before this, all the way back to the beginning, even this one. God's been their everlasting protector, refuge, safe place. But not only did God exist back then, he looks around and sees the mountains, he sees all of creation, and he, he backs up. He says, God, we know that you've existed before the mountains were even formed, the oldest recognized evidence of creation. God existed at that time, at, at creation, before the people existed. And then he backs up even further if you look at the next one. Not only was God around before the mountains were born, but God was present even before time began. He has always been from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. <clears throat> Excuse me. God is eternal. So why is this important? Why is it helpful for us to start our meditation, our worship here? And what do we have to learn from this? Well, for one, this immediately draws a stark contrast to us as humans, doesn't it? 
Moses is about to lay that out with great clarity, but um, God is eternal. He has always been. And even without reading on, just hearing this immediately puts us in perspective. We immediately sense his vastness and our limitlessness, or I'm sorry, our limitedness. But stopping to consider that God is eternal causes us to step out of our thinking of our own terms of life. And into God's terms, we need this in order to think rightly about our lives. So we need the scope of our questions, the scope of our reasoning, the scope of our thinking to be in the scope of our God, which is the scope of eternity. So now from this expanded perspective, we read on to hear Moses' contrast uh, between this attribute of God and his incredible, I guess, eternality here with the brevity of our lives, and he dwells on God's sovereignty over that. Look at verse 3. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew, and toward evening, it fades and withers away. So in contrast to God's eternality, God, man's nature is definitely transitory, not eternal. And more than just transitory, it's brief. Uh, the lives of men are just a breath in light of God's eternity. But notice the cause of the brevity, and that's what the, the attribute is that we're looking at here in this section. The cause of man's brevity, according to these verses, it is by God's authority, God's sovereignty, that the lives of men end and even, even when each life ends, not just that they do. So note the descriptive language used here. It's, it's poetic. Um, you turn man back into dust at the beginning of verse 3. Dust is a familiar term. It was used by God, actually, to describe his creation and sovereignty over it, hearkening back to Genesis 3.19, when God says to Adam right after the fall, for you are dust and you and to dust you shall return. So one commentary in, in, uh, highlighted the fact that in this psalm, um, dust insinuates a pulverizing something to dust, a, a disassembling, if you will. Who's doing that action? It, Moses puts us squarely on the hand of God. He returns us to dust at the end of life. He continues to use descriptive language. Look, he uses several analogies now to demonstrate how fleeting our, our lives are, the lives of men. And by the way, when I say men, I, I mean the race of men that bears the image of God, not the gender, all right? This is not men versus women. This is the race of men, mankind, humankind. So verse four, a life is like yesterday went by, or like a watch, which is about four hours in that term. A lifetime of a, of a person is a brief period of time in light of history and even a briefer period of time in the light of God's eternality. So we have scope. We have the blip on the radar now, and we're starting to feel that. Look at verse five. At the end of verse five, it says the word grass. It flourishes briefly, then fades. This is, this is a particularly poignant analogy for those dwelling in the wilderness for years. Um, it's a quite desert-like wilderness in their region, and in arid regions, the, the coolness at the beginning of a day brings 
uh, a morning dew often that encourages like, plants to sprout new growth, new, new sprouts, those light green, vibrant pieces of grass or maybe even flowers. But, and I'm sure Moses had many times where he could appreciate the beauty of new growth in the morning, delicate, small wonders. But then, as the desert sun begins blazing its long arc across the sky, by late afternoon, every new tender shoot is scorched. It withers and dies and is gone. Such growth won't get a chance to really establish until maybe a different season comes, right? And it has maybe another day or two to live and it can be strong enough to, to move on. But in the heat, they sprout display life for a brief few hours in the morning and they're scorched and die. And that's what Moses is referring to. God is the one Moses gives full credit to that ends the lives of men. He is sovereign over the brevity of our lives and this meditation of Moses is intended to be both worshipful and sobering to us fleeting people. It's a heavy thought. So why is this important to Moses' point and important for God's people to hear and even for us to hear this morning? It's important that we remember that God is the one who is in control as to whether I live today or whether my life is short or whether it's long. <laughs> by, by our standards, short and long. This again gives us perspective about life in the light of God. He is not passive in this He's the one who decrees life, and he's the one who decrees death. This means in my question about how I am to live each day, I cannot dismiss God in what he says. In fact, we should be getting the idea by now that actually his take is all that really matters. His take on how I live is supreme because he is sovereign. So Moses is laying groundwork here for his point. He directs our attention to, what, to dwell on God's character and his eternality, to frame the scoping of this and the vastness of God and God's sovereignty over our transient brief life. It's a sobering thought. But now moving on to verse 7, look at this. Moses now says, for we. <laughs> Stop right there. Um, Notice the language before I move on. This is what I'm learning is a conjunction. <laughs> it's connected to the previous thought. It's saying, here we go. Moses is giving the cause of what he just stated. He's giving the reason why man's life is so brief by God's sovereign will. Verse 7, for we have cons been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our days like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Here we see Moses meditating on God's Severity is one way to put it. Moses directly attributes the brevity of man's life to God's fury and wrath against sin. We've been consumed by your anger, he says, and by your wrath we've been dismayed. Verse 9, for all our days have declined in your fury, anger, wrath, fury against sins, and they're being consumed by it. Life is declining because of it, and they see it. 
This is true for all human life, by the way, um, since the fall, not only in this circumstance. Again, going back to Genesis 3.19, God was speaking to Adam right after they had sinned and was explaining the curse that was the result of the fall. And he was saying, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground because from it you were taken and for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So the curse which affects all of the human race is the result of God's sovereignty against sin leading to the decline of lives and ultimate death. And here in this passage, Moses is just particularly aware of this reality, and and they are in a particular season of God's punishment designed to wipe a generation away, which that sounds severe, doesn't it? And we just need to recognize that was, it's always true about us. It's just that they're experiencing it in such a poignant way. And he's meditating on that now, on God's severity against the sinfulness of men, and he's seeing the manifestation of it play out in front of him. Verse 8 Look at that. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 8 highlights how vulnerable the people are before the omniscient God. They have sinful hearts, and in the light of God's presence, this puts their inward secret grumbles and their sins of their hearts on display before him, the righteous, holy God. And this is a reality also for all sinners, isn't it? They're feeling it. Are communicating it, but it's true for all sinners. Because of God's character, we too should feel the vulnerability in verse eight. In the light of his presence, our iniquities are displayed clearly before him. Nothing is hidden. And this, indica- this, this actually incites the righteous, just God in his severe anger against sin. And so I just want to point something out. Again, this is heavy, But Moses doesn't hide from this uncomfortable reality. He actually doesn't. He he doesn't try to excuse it. He doesn't complain about God's anger against sin or say it's unfair or try to stick up for himself. He actually acknowledges it, the truth of it. He wants no one to miss it or ignore it, so he sets his mind on it. He dwells on it, he considers it, and directs everyone's attention to it so that their reality is shaped by it, so that they're not duped by thinking that's not in line with this reality. And so should we. We too should be shaped by the reality of God's character and be honest about the reality of our sin before him if we are to learn to live well and to live wisely. This has got to shape us. This is not to beat ourselves up. That serves no purpose. But before we can hear and receive what God has offered to us, we must honestly acknowledge our sinfulness before him and, what, and that's what Moses is doing here. We'll come to the hope in the moment toward the end here, but before we do, let's just finish this and read a little bit further. Listen to how Moses describes the reality of living in this season of discipline. Verse nine for all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. In this season of punishment, they, even if they live a strong life, at best, 
all they have to show for it at the end of their life is just labor and sorrow. Contrast this with previous seasons of God's people when it seemed like no matter where they went or what they touched, God blessed it and it just bore fruit and it was rich. God did work for them. He fought for them. He blessed their their everything. And this is not the season that they're in right now, so they can see that contrast. Moses can see that. It's very different. The net sum of a hard work day is not a lot of productivity, but labor and sorrow. This is what life is like for them right now. So Moses' meditation on these realities naturally and clearly land in a heavy lament. These realities, rightly understood, lead to a real heaviness for those who are living in opposition to God and his will. That's what it's meant to do. So from this clarity that Moses has now gained by meditating on this and worshiping God in it, Moses now responds by crying out in verse 11, landing squarely on the crisis of this problem. Who understands the power of your anger in verse 11? And your fury, according to the fear that is due you. The question is rhetorical. Who fears the Lord as they should? And the rhetorical answer is true, both generally and specifically in this circumstance. Generally speaking, when a person really considers the depth of God's character, his eternality, his sovereignty, his severity... Who really comprehends the magnitude and the severity of God and has reverence that is actually due him in a way that matches the reality? Clearly, this is something that as humans, we really can't fully comprehend, and we haven't even seen and experienced enough to know that, and we're limited in our thinking anyway, but even if we can't understand the depth, the question is still useful. Who seeks to understand, to fear the Lord, and grapple with this as we should, to grow in understanding. Who seeks to know God and fear them, fear him like they should? There's an answer to that. There are those that do, and there are those who don't. Throughout scripture, this term of fear of the Lord is an important concept. It's worth its own message or even series, but just briefly, at first glance, it may sound like a terrible thing to come upon someone, like in a book when we read that fear came upon someone and gripped them. You know, that sounds negative. But actually, the fear of the Lord was given to God's people by God to be the source of wisdom and all blessing from God. We read about it. It was originally given to them. I, I, one of my favorite passages in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2, and it says this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, Moses is talking, to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going to possess it. And what does he say? That you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son, and by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. That's the result of the fear of the Lord that he's giving them. If you keep reading Proverbs 1-7, you're familiar with probably a lot of these. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. You see the blessing? Psalm 85, 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Psalm 25, 12 through 14 of David. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him. God will instruct him in the way he should choose how to live. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant, his promises. So as we hear in what God has revealed to us about the fear of the Lord, it's the beginning of, the wis- of wisdom. It leads to salvation. It prolongs life. It brings instruction, prosperity, invitation to know secrets and promises of God. It's intended to protect you from evil and from sin. Do you see why Moses is concerned if he doesn't see that among these people? By meditating on these things, And directing our attention to these these things, it lands us squarely on the issue. Do you fear the Lord as you should? Do you seek to know the fear of the Lord? And at this point, Moses is overcome by the reality and the gravity that in spite of the fact that God has shown them his power, put his mighty works on display, shown his glory, and they are right now experiencing his anger and fury against their sin, they, they still don't fear him as they should. This is the problem that landed them in this discipline to start with. They weren't growing to revere God and as he revealed himself. It showed in their lives and in their hearts and it brought God's anger and discipline and now Moses looks around and says, who understands it yet? Who seeks to understand the fear of the Lord? And they still lack. How then will they ever escape this? this ongoing discipline that they rightfully deserve as they fail over and over and over again. So as an aside, let's just take assessment of where they're at. It should be obvious how bleak this is, but these people whose lives are a fleeting breath, who have been irreverent and sinful against a perfect and holy God, who is eternal, sovereign over their lives and severe against their sin, these people, they're under punishment such that they are banished to the wilderness where they are to live a difficult life and die. And to that, as a people, they don't seem to be learning the lesson here. So let's be honest, most people in this circumstance would quickly grow despondent about life. What's the point? We're just here to live a hard life and die. Why try? Why work hard at all? Why try to live each day to the most? They would lose hope quickly. And in fact, maybe even want to spurn God all the more for doing this to us, right? This is definitely the natural response of a person who's thinking with natural reasoning. This would be the perspective of a person who doesn't know God's character or who doesn't meditate on his character enough to consider it and comprehend it. But not Moses. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God, Moses, who God was pleased to show himself to, to speak face to face and plainly to. Moses, who knew God personally. 
because Moses knew God and would take time to meditate on his character and consider it in all things, Moses did not roll over and give up. Recognizing the need for the people to learn the fear of the Lord and looking around and seeing that that hope isn't within them to grow in this, Moses, the man of God, doesn't give up. His, he has a source of unending hope, and that is his God. Moses' response, Moses asks God himself to teach them. Look at verse 11 and 12 in this context now. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Answer, of course, is nobody. So his question is this, or his ask, his entreaty, Lord, so teach us. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Moses asks God to teach them to number our days. What does this mean? Um, he's already pointed out that our days are few. To live in light of that is one of the things he's asking. Help us to learn to realize that we really are a breath. Help us not to be so cavalier that there's always a tomorrow and that we have plenty of time to get right. You've ever bought into that lie? Lord, teach us. Number doesn't just mean to enumerate, though, to know how many there are. It's not alone. This word actually also implies not just to count them, but to account for them. How to measure and evaluate them in content and in value. And certainly a worldly person, a natural person, that is not informed by God and his character would measure the value of a day differently than a person who's been meditating and growing and understanding the character of God and what he values. So Lord, teach us to measure the value of a day based on wisdom gained from understanding you and your character. Teach us to learn to live each day according to what you value, God, not my preferences or my definition of living to the fullest, Lord, I, I'm gonna have to measure it by your wisdom. The goal here, he says it, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. The result of this teaching is that we would gain a heart of wisdom, that they would gain. I'm putting myself in this position because I very much identify with this as I consider God's character. And as we work through this, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Commentaries mentioned that this term, um, I'm not a Hebrew expert, and so I love that people are, and they can tell us all these implications that my English translation doesn't make obvious right off the bat. And it mentions that this term wisdom has a sense of gaining skill. Like, Moses is asking that God himself would teach them how to live and that they would gain skill in living each day in a way that is productive and fruitful in ways that are valuable to God, skillful in living each day to honor him. That's what he's asking of God. We need to learn from this. When we truly recognize our sinfulness before the living God, we too should respond by asking God to teach us how we should live each day, that we would gain skill in living each day in a way that honors him and that is valuable to him. So yeah, while rather than growing despondent and give up hope. Moses, the man of God, is compelled to entreat God to work an impossible change in the hearts of God's people among them. 
Why? Again, what compels him to ask God for this in the midst of such a bleak circumstance when they're clearly guilty and obviously undeserving? Again, it's God's character. Moses remembers and knows well that another oh-so-important trait of God and his character, his amazing, mind-blowing character, and that is God's mercy and his goodness. Here in this section, verses 13 through 17, Moses, in accordance with God's character, calls on God's mercy so that they can be restored to his favor and experience his goodness in relationship with him. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants, O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm us, or confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. By the way, do you hear the familiar language in this? Moses mirrors from God's own words to him. Look at the passage here in your Bible and look at the similarities. Do you, do you remember the, some of the language from Numbers 14 as I was reading? When, when God said back then, when he put them in this discipline, how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite the signs which I have performed in their midst? And he's asking for those signs and those works again. He's saying, how long, Lord, till you return? The men have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and the wilderness. And according to the number of the days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year and even 40 years you will know my opposition. Do you see some of the using of his language? It's fascinating to hear and wonderful to hear this man of God pray to God. His prayer is bold, isn't it? It might even seem audacious or demanding, but again, that's not it. Moses knew God, knew God's words, knew God's purposes, knew his promises. This is Moses speaking plainly to God about what he knows to be true about him, about God's character and promises of his love for his people. Look at verse 13, do return, O Lord, how long will it be and be sorry for your servants? Notice this time he calls God by a title. Now, we don't necessarily see it in all of our translations, but if you noticed in several of these translations, like in mine, I'm looking at the NASB right now, and the O Lord there is in all caps. It's indicating that it's not just a title of a Lord that anyone could bear. This is actually a, um, a special uh, proper name of God, Yahweh, which is the covenant-keeping God. The God who made promises and keeps them for his servants, his people. He knows this about God and he calls him by name. Then he calls to God's loving kindness. Verse 14, oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness. By the way, this word, loving kindness, translated sometimes uh, in other ways as well, a covenant love, a steadfast love. You've probably heard Pastor Rick teach and talk about 
this. This is one of his favorite Hebrew words, chesed. It's a, it's a, it's a special kind of love that God has for his people. It's a love that is full of mercy and sacrifice. And it's a loyal, committed love, a devoted love to his own people that's special to this group, a covenant love that he placed on his people, not because they're awesome, but because he chose them and promised it of him. Moses calls on this, knowing that it is God's character to keep his covenant love with his people. Do you see where Moses' hope come from? Do you see the basis on which Moses calls out to God with such boldness and hope? In the midst of this bleak situation, yes, Moses has asked God to teach them how to live rightly before them, how to teach them to fear them as they should. He wanted no one in Israel to reject God in their heart and fall away from the living God. But make no mistake, Moses' hope in their restoration to God is not in the ability of these people to live well, to live righteously first before him. There's no way to gain access to God's mercy and goodness this way, and they would have failed by now over and over and over. They would have been lost and doomed long ago. His confidence and hope in being restored to God is dependent on the character of God in relation to his people. His hope in the covenant-keeping God, in the steadfast love of a God who made that covenant. Which is why, despite their repeated failures and their currently bleak circumstances, Moses has great confidence in the midst of all this he has confidence in God's character, his mercy and his goodness to return them and restore them in verse 13, to satisfy them in verse 14, to make them glad in verse 15, to display his work before him and his majesty to their children in verse 16, to let his favor be on them, verse 17, confirm the work of their hands that once again they would bear fruit that honor him from their lives and they would see it and feel it. Verse 17. You see, that's fruit of God's character being born in the lives of sinful people. The hope of God's people always has and always will be not in their ability to live well enough, make the most of enough day. <laughs> that's, that's not the basis on which they access this aspect of God's character that Moses is meditating on. Outside of that covenant, there's no access to his goodness and mercy, we fail too much, and yet he boldly asks. Today, access to God's promise and covenant love, access to his grace, his mercy, his goodness that we need so much is extended to us through his son, Jesus Christ, in the new covenant. That is the fulfillment of this promise that he's relying on right now, and it is still to us, not us living well enough. The fact that we want to grow in learning how to live each day to the fullest doesn't earn anything with God. But those who do fear God and do call on his name, they desire to learn how to live each day to the fullest according to God's definition. In Christ, those who recognize their sinfulness before an eternal, sovereign, severe God those who fear the Lord by turning and trusting 
in the perfect sacrifice that God provided in his son's death on the cross on our behalf. We have access to this fulfilled promise of his mercy and his grace. We are forgiven and we are adopted into his family and his people and his loving kindness. It cannot be earned by living well enough. It's only through the promise of God through his son Christ. And I just, want to, I just want that to be clear. I don't want to talk about living life to the fullest and being the best you can be as though that was a way to earn it. We know that's not the case. But today, how do we learn to live wisely? We can follow Moses' example. Do you meditate on God's character like this? Does it compel you to see the scope of your life differently the authority of your life differently? Does it compel you to sit before him in awe and reverence and grow in that? We should. Where do we find that? We have God revealed in truth right here. It's compelling the way that Moses is affected by this and we would wanna do that. We learn this. And we would want to see God's eternality and learn to have a true perspective on life, that we would see God's sovereignty over our lives and his severity regarding our sinfulness so we would grow to revere him, see our need for our savior, for his grace, and know that character of him too. Access through the work that Christ did on the cross. Do you ask God to teach you to live each day to the fullest by his definition or do you cling to your own? I'm speaking to myself. I hope we're fellowshipping in this right now because this, this took me to the ground for weeks as I've studied this and I'm so thankful. Then meditating on God's mercy and goodness only available through his promises fulfilled in his son Jesus, we would live trusting no matter what our circumstances. He's good and every day can count and be lived in fullness in him. What hope we have let me pray for us. Father, thank you for Moses, the man of God, and the prayer that we have here for us all to fellowship in. Thank you for Psalm 90 that draws us to meditate on God, on you, Almighty, and your character as you are described by yourself so that we would learn to live each day wisely before him, before the Almighty, before you, and then to call on you for your mercy and to live in your favor and goodness and expect that. Lord, help us to be compelled, spurred on, encouraged to grow in our understanding of you and to worship you as we do so. As sobering as it is, Lord, it is your grace and your mercy and your goodness that causes us to want to sing all the days of our lives, and we know that you're capable of doing that. So we ask for your enabling understanding. We ask for your help and your teaching us that we would live each day. It's most for you. In Jesus' name, amen.